And I would invite you this morning uh, to take your Bibles and turn to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 20. Um, If you don't know this by now, you'll know it in just a minute. My mind just works in strange ways. Um, This week, I got to thinking about an old radio show. It's actually not that old. It's a syndicated radio show that I discovered ran up through about 2016. It was called A Prairie Home Companion. Typically was on NPR uh, stations, hosted by uh, a man by the name of Garrison Keeler. Uh, Garrison Keeler is a master storyteller. I mean, he is one of the best. And as they would go through this variety show with some music and everything, at the end of the show, the very last thing that would happen was Mr. Keeler would stand up and he would say, well, it's been a quiet week in Lake Wobegon, Minnesota, my hometown. And from then on, for about the next 15 minutes, without a script, he would tell a story from Lake Wobegon, Minnesota, about how things went and different people, people, characters he had made up. And as you listened, you could just see it. Last week, as I personally read from our sermon last week from Matthew 16 all the way up to where we're going to be today in Matthew 20, I realized it wasn't a quiet session in Matthew uh, as we read. I I, I was sitting there thinking, well, you know, kind of Garrison Keeler-esque, well, a lot's happened between Matthew 16 and Matthew 20 in this section. And there was, there was a lot that happened, and it wasn't a quiet time. It was a time full of a lot of lessons and all. And and so for whatever reason, my strange, wacko mind made me think of Mr. Keeler. But as I looked at that, I thought, man, there's so much that goes on. And I'm reminded of the fact that the gospel writers don't give us every detail of the days of Jesus' life. What we have in the gospels are these broad brushstrokes. In fact, this time of year, I'm constantly reminded that the majority, about almost a third of all of the gospels happen between what we will celebrate next week, Palm Sunday and Easter Sunday. A third of the material happens in that one week. That's how important that week is. But they give us these broad brushstrokes, and sometimes what they do is they arrange the events to help us kind of see what Jesus is teaching. I think we have that arrangement here in what we're going to be looking at today in Matthew 20, verses 20 to 34. But what happened between Matthew 16 and Matthew 20? A lot. Between Matthew 16 and Matthew 20, the three of the disciples have seen Jesus in all of his glory. We call it the transfiguration. They walk away with a brand new appreciation of who he is. Between Matthew 16 and Matthew 20, all of the disciples have seen demons cast out. Between Matthew 16 and Matthew 20, they've all received extensive teaching about what it means to be great in God's kingdom, and that was boiled down to being like a 
dependent little child. And, and what you'll see today in the passage we look at is that lesson didn't stick because they still struggled with that reality. What, what we saw in between Matthew 16 and 20 is they've been instructed on how do you deal with sin in the faith community? How important it is to forgive all wrongs, why that's important. They, they were taught about marriage. They were shown how difficult it is for people who depend on their wealth to actually follow Jesus. They were taught that God shows no favoritism and that entrance into his kingdom is not about our performance, it's about our faith. And in twice more, Jesus predicted his death. And in two more times, he told them, here's what's going to happen. We're on our way to Jerusalem. And I, the, the Son of Man is going to be arrested and he's going to suffer many things at the hands of the chief priests and the elders and the teachers of the law. And he's going to be crucified and he will raise again on the third day. So they've heard that now three times. And I think they were starting to get the message. Because what we have happening here in Matthew chapter 20 and verse 20 makes me think that they were starting to figure a few things out. So let's read. Follow along as I read our passage for this morning. Beginning in chapter 20, verse 20 of Matthew. Then the mother of Zebedee's sons came to Jesus with her sons and kneeling down asked a favor of him. What is it you want? he asked. She said, Grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right and the other at your left in your kingdom. You don't know what you are asking, Jesus said to them. Can you drink the cup I'm going to drink? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, You will indeed drink from my cup. But to sit at my right or left is, is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared by my father. When the ten heard about this, they were indignant with the two brothers. Jesus called them together and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Indeed, instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be your slave, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. As Jesus and his disciples were leaving Jericho, a large crowd followed him. Two blind men were sitting by the roadside, and when they heard that Jesus was going by, they shouted, Lord, Son of David, have mercy on us. The crowd rebuked them and told them to be quiet, but they shouted all the later, louder, Lord, Son of David, have mercy on us. Jesus stopped and called them. What do you want me to do for you? He asked. Lord, they answered, we want our sight. Jesus had compassion on them and touched their eyes. 
Immediately they received their sight and followed him. What an amazing couple of events. The first one is a mom who cares about her sons, who wants to see her sons succeed. Scholars believe, and there's evidence to the fact that that this person, this mother, was not just the mother of James and John, but she was the sister to Mary, the mother of Jesus. Her name most likely was Salome. She's mentioned several times in Scripture. She was part of the entourage that followed Jesus. Salome would be at the cross in a few weeks when Jesus would die. Salome would be with the other women and going to the grave and preparing the body for burial and then going back on that resurrection day and and being told by the angel he's not here, he's risen from the dead. She's not just another woman in the entourage of those that follow Jesus, she's his aunt. These are his cousins. And in Matthew's account, she comes and she asks Jesus for a favor. You ever tried to turn down your aunt? Your mom or dad's sister? They like have authority. And these are his cousins. He's like the cool older cousin who does miracles and stuff, and they're following me along. John is probably 17 to 19 years old, and he's hanging out with Jesus. And so she comes and asks this favor. Now, in Matthew's account, it was a little bit earlier that Jesus had talked about, especially when he talked about how hard it is for a wealthy person to learn to depend on God. And and Peter said, Lord, we've left everything to follow you. What's there for us? And Jesus said, you're going to receive more than you've given up, and one day the 12 of you will sit on thrones and, and you will rule with me. And so no doubt Salome heard this, and she thought, you know, I need to, I, I need to help things up, out here a little bit. And before you think that James and John are standing over there going, Mom, really? You're embarrassing us. Mark's account tells us that they went. So this is kind of a a family thing. The the, the group is probably in on this. We we, we live in a time of labeling. You know, it was only, it was in the, about 25, 30 years ago, all of a sudden began to realize, when did we start labeling generations? You know, it's a kind of a late 20th century thing. You know, we've got the, the builders and the boomers and the, bus, the builders and the boomers and the busters and Gen X, Y, Z, and then it goes on and on. That wasn't always the case. And then we started labeling parenting styles. We've got helicopter parents who hover over their children. And sociologists would call Salome a lawnmower parent. A lawnmower parent goes in front of their children like a lawnmower and moves all obstacles out of the way so that their life is smooth. She's just trying to eliminate all the obstacles for her boys to be successful as she defines success. And I think it's really important to notice how Jesus responds here. He, He doesn't just 
push his aunt away. But he turns his attention to the two disciples. And in fact, when you get to verse 22, and he says, you don't know what you're asking, that you is plural. He's now talking to James and John. He says, I don't think you really know what you're asking here. Can you drink of the same cup I drink of? In other words, can you really say that you want to walk the same path I'm walking? You see, sometimes we ask for stuff and we dream about things or situations and we think we, think we want something and we haven't always considered all the implications and that's kind of where they're at. They're not really thinking about all the implications of what they're asking. When we were in youth ministry, one of my favorite things was to listen to high school boys talk about the kind of car they would own someday. You know, it'd be like, man, one day I'm going to get a Porsche. Or one day, not me, man, I'm going to get a Lamborghini. I want a Lamborghini in my driveway. Not me, man, I'm going to have a Corvette. I'm going American-made, baby. I'm going to have a Corvette. And I'm sitting there listening to these guys thinking, you haven't even thought about insurance. You haven't even thought about maintenance. I mean, if you at 16 could buy a Lamborghini, all you could do was buy it. You couldn't afford the insurance for it. You don't know what parts cost on that vehicle and on and on and on. And sometimes we're like that. We say, oh God, I want this. And God says, you don't know what you're asking. And that's what Jesus says to these guys here. The idea of the cup was one's destiny. And in this case, Jesus is referring to what he's already told them three times. And he's asking, are you ready? Are you ready to be rejected? Are you ready in a culture that we would call an honor-shame culture? Are you ready to face the shame of being publicly humiliated? Are you ready for that? And they go, oh yeah, 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 we can do that. We got this. That's, that's kind of the hubris of the day, isn't it? I got this. And they're saying, yeah, we can do that. We're ready. And Jesus said, well, you're going to go through. You are going to go through your own suffering and rejection for the sake of the gospel. You're going to go through some stuff that you don't know about yet. You see, you just turn a few pages over to Acts chapter 12. And James, one of the guys that's asking Jesus this, was beheaded by Herod. John lived a longer life, but we believe in the book of Revelation when he's on the island of Patmos, he's pushing 90 years old. And at 90 years old, he was sentenced to the island of Patmos, which was a, a penal colony, and it was mining. And so here's a 90-year-old man working in the mines for the sake of the gospel. You don't know what you're asking, guys. You, you're going to drink a cup of suffering and shame. But it's not now. And then Jesus said something else. I've submitted myself to the Father is what he's saying. Notice he says this. You will indeed drink from my cup, but to sit at my right 
or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared by my Father. Jesus had submitted himself to the will of the Father, and he says, it's not my call. Yeah, you might sit on 12 thrones, but it's not my call to determine the seating order. And you need to understand in that day, seating order was very important. The people that sat on the right and the left were the most important people at the event, at the dinner, in the throne room. And so the seating order was very important. And Jesus said, that's not my call. Now you got to remember something. Just a little bit earlier... In chapter 18, Jesus said the greatest in the kingdom is like a child. They're dependent. They're humble. And on the heels of this, the ten hear about this question. I mean, they couldn't have been far away. What is Salome doing? What is she? She's kneeling, but why is she asking him? Wait a minute. You've you got to be kidding me. James and John, they want to sit. No way are they sitting on the left and the right. We need to talk about this. They're indignant with the two brothers. That word indignant, it means more than just being angry. One writer said it's a word that was used to speak of new wine fermenting and bubbling up. They are bubbling over with anger. They are boiling. How dare James and John used their family connections to get a leg up on us. You know, sometimes Jesus waits until we are at our wit's end to teach us a lesson. Sometimes we need to get to that point where we just are like, don't even know what to do next. And then, oh, there might be a lesson here. So Jesus calls them all together. Now, I, I realize that probably most likely he calls the 12. But remember this, there was always an entourage with Jesus. So I got to believe Salome's kind of hearing this too and others. He calls them together. And, and, and what he wants them to know is that they have the wrong idea about real leadership. See, they all want to be first. In their minds, leadership is a top-down type of situation. Leadership to them means being recognized, being honored, being celebrated, being revered. And Jesus starts with what they already understand. He points out what they've already experienced in life. For all of their lives, these individuals have lived under the authority and the leadership and the oppression of Rome. And so Jesus starts out. He goes, you know, you already know this, that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their high officials exercise authority over them. What Jesus wants them to know is that human leadership is all too often about status and power. He says the rulers of the Gentiles, the rulers, the Roman rulers, the Greek rulers, they do two things. One, they lord their leadership over others. The, the term there that's lord it over, lord their, uh, lord it over them, that term is a combination term. It, it has the idea of 
ruling to one's own advantage. We've all seen that kind of leadership. I, I don't care where you've worked, who you've worked for, you've seen that kind of leadership. That's the kind of leadership where that manager or that supervisor or that individual is simply using the rest of the team to build his or her personal resume. They may not state it overtly, but the message they live is that everybody here exists for one purpose, to make me look good. So don't you dare embarrass me. Don't surprise me. Don't you ever question me because you exist to make me look good. That's lording leadership over somebody else. But Jesus said they do a second thing. Their high officials exercise authority over them. They exercise authority over those they lead. The idea behind the term exercise authority over is oppression. Oppress, to oppress someone is to weigh them down, to overload them, to subject them to harsh rules or restraints. Authoritarian, oppressive leadership comes from one who believes that as the leader, not only are they above everybody, but they are also better than everybody else on the team, in their company, in the family, in the church. And, and something to be aware of. Authoritarian, oppressive leadership, lording it over leadership, doesn't always come with an iron fist pounded on the table. Sometimes that authoritarian, oppressive leader can come across as being really kind of a nice person. But they're a nice person as long as you are doing exactly what they want you to do to make them look good. And Jesus said, that's, that's what it's like for the rulers of the Gentiles. And you know what? It's not really hard, is it? It's not hard to recall when you've been under this kind of leadership. Because you remember it. And you struggle with it. And, and, and you walked away every day wondering if you were good enough, if you had done what, all, all that was needed. But then Jesus gives us a crystal clear contrast. Not so with you. First of all, talking to his 12 that he is training and preparing to take over this movement that we would call the church that would last for 2,000 years and is continuing on today. Not so with you. Not so with you, crowds that are standing around. Not so with you, people at Pleasant Hill Community Church. We should lead differently. Not so with you. Godlike leadership, Jesus says, is always other-centered. Here's what he says. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Jesus takes the conventional wisdom of top-down leadership and completely turns it upside down. And so just as he uses two examples for Gentile leadership, he uses two for godlike leadership. And the thing that he says is this, 
God-like leaders are first of all servants. The word that's translated servant here is the same word that we get our word deacon from. It was typically used for someone who waited at table. Not long ago, Charlene and I went out for dinner together. And uh, the individual came and said, Hello, I'm Bill. I'm your server today. In Greek, they would have said, hello, I'm Bill, I'm your deacon today. Uh, you know, I'm serving your table. And typically the person in this kind of servant was someone who actually got paid for their work. And the key point is serving others. That's what they do. And that person, especially if they do their job well, they show up at your table not you know, every so often. Is everything okay? Can I refill your drink? Can I get you anything? And, and they're just there to serve you, to make you feel at home and welcome. And Jesus said, do you want to be a leader? Don't, it's not top-down leadership. Instead, if you want to become great among people, then be their servant. Make sure they have what they need. Treat them with value. But then he takes it a step further. Godlike leaders are deeply humble. Look at the stronger word he uses. And whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Jesus said, you really want to be first in the kingdom of God? You really want to be a leader in the kingdom of God? Then it's going to begin by being not just a servant, but actually being a slave. And that's an accurate translation of the original term. We don't like the term slave, nor should we. This, a slave is a person who is forced into service. A slave is a person who is considered of the lowest positions. And neither the servant nor the slave was necessarily respected. And, you know, we got to be so careful because that terminology and, and this is one of those passages that was used in the 19th century in this country to justify holding people slaves and that's not the point Jesus is making the the point Jesus is making is simply this both of these are by nature other centered and when you choose to be deeply humble and become others centered even if you feel one is forced, you put yourself in a position where God can take your humility and raise you up to what he wants you to be. Jesus said, let me give myself as the example. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. Think about that for a minute. This is Jesus, God the Son, the second person of the Trinity, as you will. The, the, the one that Paul would say in Colossians was the active agent of creation. The one by whom everything is sustained and held together. Jesus came to serve. Jesus, the one who can say, peace be still, and the wind and the waves stop. Jesus, the one that said, would say, Lazarus, come out, and this dead man would get up and walk out of the grave. 
Jesus said, I didn't come to make myself great. I came to serve. I didn't come to be served. I came to give my life as a ransom for many. Some of you will be expecting me at this moment to use the term servant leadership. I'm not going to do that. Because I think sometimes in our way that we twist things as humans, the people that, you know, the individuals say, well, I am a servant leader. The, the minute I say that, I'm a servant leader, I've all of a sudden not become a servant. I'm telling you, look at me. I like the term godlike leadership because it's leadership that's about God. I don't want somebody, I don't want to use a ploy or a term that might make someone think I'm the great leader. It's never about the leader, it's about God, and it's about us in any position in which we find ourselves pointing other people to Him. I know I've told you this before. There, Kurt and Lorraine are in heaven now, but they used to sit right there. When we first came here in uh, 1996, uh, we, in July of that year, we came up every weekend from Winona Lake, Indiana, and we would stay with a different family in the church over that weekend. And we happened to spend one Saturday night, uh, Friday night and Saturday night with, with Kurt and Lorraine. And I would ask everybody that we stayed with, what do you want from your pastor? What do you want your pastor to be? And I'll never forget well, I might someday, but hopefully not, Kurt's words. I want you to be a pointer. A pointer. Now, I've done some bird hunting. I know what a pointer is, you know, so I'm going, huh? <laughs> what do you mean, Kurt? Every Sunday, I want you to point me to Jesus. I love that. That's God-like leadership. That's what God wants. He wants us to point others to Jesus. When we employ God-like leadership, people see the God who we say indwells us. Now, I believe, as I said earlier, Matthew arranged his gospel to help us see some things. And I believe this next story is not to be taken away from what we see here. I think it's part of it. Jesus and his disciples are leaving Jericho. There's a large crowd following him. Right now, Jesus has status and power from a human perspective in the sense that People are following Jesus. They want to know what's next. What's he going to do next? What's going to be great? What are we going to see? What can we get out of this? And so they're following Jesus. And as they're leaving Jericho, there's these two blind men sitting by the side of the road. And they, they, they've heard about, because the word of Jesus has spread about. And so these two guys have heard about Jesus. And they start shouting. They need to get his attention. Lord, Son of David, have mercy on us. That's such a powerful statement. They are acknowledging his lordship. They are acknowledging that they believe he's the Messiah because the term Son of David, we talked about it last week, Jesus referred to himself as Son of Man. People knew what the Son of David was. The Son of David is the Messiah who's coming. They say, 
They're acknowledging that and they yell out, have mercy on us. And, and the crowd rebukes them. Guys, just hush, just stay out. You don't even contribute to society. You're blind beggars. He really doesn't need you. Just stay over here. And I love these guys. Because they just shout it all the more louder. They just, just are yelling to the top of their lungs. And they are ignoring the crowd. They are calling out to Jesus. And Jesus stops. And he calls out to them, what do you want me to do for you? Now, you might think that's a, a silly question. But I believe it's specifically designed by Jesus to give them an opportunity to express their faith. I mean, you'll look in John 9, and there's a man that's there, uh, John, not 9, it's earlier than that, there's a man standing by a pool, you know, living, laying there by a pool. And, and Jesus comes up to him and says, do you want to be healed? And he goes, well, you know, every time the, the, the pool gets all stirred up, I can't get down there. And it's like, that's not the question Jesus is asking. Do you want to be healed? And if he was a man of faith, he would say, yes. These guys get a chance to express their faith, and they do. We want our sight. And I love this. Jesus had compassion on them and touched their eyes. Let that sink in for a second. Jesus had compassion on them. We talked about that a few weeks ago. It's that visceral reaction. He is moved with these men. And he touches them. There is great power in a safe and meaningful and acceptable touch. Jesus gently touches people in ways that encourage them. Jesus valued them. Jesus connected with them. And they're healed. And note what happens. They receive their sight immediately. You know, just, again, stop for a second. Little babies, when they're born, it takes a little while. It takes a couple of weeks for them to start being able to see things. Their eyes have to develop. If you've had any, if any of you have ever had any eye surgery or cataracts removed, things like that, you know you got to wear those cool sunglasses for a while to kind of protect your eyes. You know they're very dark, and and you know and and the whole the way the eye works. You know there's there's the ocular nerve, and there's so many things that have to happen immediately. All of that works immediately. They don't have to kind of oh it's bright. They they're they're. Their iris works and it cuts out the sun so that they're not too squinty. And, and it's, it's, it's amazing. And immediately they're healed. And they follow Jesus. Somebody said this. The crowds had the allure. But the need was two blind beggars. And the crowds continue just to be spectators. While the beggars follow Jesus. In his actions, Jesus reveals to his disciples what does it look like to put others first. You see, top-down leadership would have joined the crowds. Come on, guys, you're in the way. Stay out of the way. 
Top-down leadership would have wanted the allure of the crowds. Top-down leadership would have wanted the status that comes with the crowds. Top-down leadership would have wanted the power that the crowds give them. But servant leadership says, these two people over here have great value, and they are valuable to the kingdom of God, and they have a great need, and I have the ability to meet that need, and I'm going to meet that need. And it's easy for us to say, well, Pastor Scott, this is a fun sermon. It's been really neat, but I'm not a leader. So, you know, thanks anyway. I think no matter what our current situation, we can still exercise the qualities of godlike leadership. And that's the point. Everyone who follows Jesus is to have an others-centered servant heart. Everyone who follows Jesus is to treat other people as important. Everyone is to value the people God brings across our path, regardless of their behavior. You see, I'm never going to be held accountable by God for the choices somebody else makes, but I am going to be held accountable for the choices I make. And sometimes we look at this and we go, well, you know, when am I ever going to have a chance to use this? I, I, I don't lead anybody, and, and it's, it's, just, it's really just so hard. And I think valuing other people is actually a lot easier than we think. I learned a powerful lesson about a simple way to value people almost 20 years ago. See, on April 11th of this year, we'll make 20 years to the day that I flew on a Lufthansa 747 to Frankfurt, Germany, and then to Moscow, and then from Moscow to Krasnyarsk. I flew out of O'Hare six months to the day after 9-11. I was 13 time zones away from Chicago. And I was sent there to teach a survey of Old Testament wisdom literature. So for two weeks, I would be teaching Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Solomon to about 30 to 35 Bible college students. Now, I know three words in Russian. Da, nyet, and spasibo. Yes, no, Thank you. That's it. That's, there's my Russian vocabulary right there. I once went to, into a little shop to get a Coke, and she pointed to the, the, the pop, and I went, yes, I mean, see, si, I mean, da. So I answered her in three different languages. I mean, you know, I, I have multi-languages here. Uh, so I had an interpreter. Speaking through an interpreter is, is difficult work because you have to pause every so often. And so I was, and my job was to teach every day, Monday through Friday, from 8 in the morning until 3.30 or 4 o'clock in the afternoon. We would get a 15-minute break in the morning, a 15-minute break in the afternoon, and 45 minutes for lunch. It was a long two weeks. It was a rewarding two weeks. But I remember on Thursday night of the first week, as I was there at my host's home, Something began to bother me. I realized I had been teaching for four days 
And I realized I hadn't taken the time to really get to know the names of my students. So I went into class on Friday morning. And I said, and you know, every time I say I said, just remember there's an interpreter. I said, I think I made a mistake this week. One of my students who spoke a little bit of English said, you came to Russia. I said, no, that's not the mistake I made. I made two mistakes. And I said, no, I have failed to take the time to get to know your names. So today, I'm going to work on getting to know your names. Now, for whatever reason, God has enabled me to be pretty good with names. Now, the students all sat in the same place. Imagine about five rows of tables with a little aisle in between. And so I said, we're going to start over here, and I want you to tell me your first name and then share one way God has blessed you in your life. And so we went five names, you know, Anna, Svetlana, Alexei, and, and, and we get to the fifth one. I said, okay, stop. And I went back and I said, all five names. Okay, let's go five more. And we went five more. I went back. I said ten. We went, did that through the whole class. When we came back from break, I said, okay, before we start, and I started here, and I went through and did all their names and, you know, would get corrected here and there. We went to lunch. We came back from lunch. I did it again. We went to the next break. I did it again. Before we left that day, I did it again. And it changed everything. The entire tone of the class changed because I simply decided I was not the sage on the stage, as it were. I was told when I walked in, you are sovereign in the classroom. I love that. But I didn't want to be sovereign in the classroom. I came to serve them. I came to teach them, to help them learn God's word so they could go teach God's word. You know, some of the students stayed after class that day and we talked. And one of the students mentioned that they had seen me. I would, where I was staying was only about a half mile from the church where we met. And it was, Krasniarsk is a good-sized city, and I, I would walk. It was, it was April, so it was just starting to kind of get a little bit warmed up. I had a big old Land's, Land's End downfield jacket, and they patted me on the back and said, it's a nice spring jacket, because they all were leather and fur and everything. But they said, they said, we saw you walking the other day on the street, on the sidewalk, and you didn't even look afraid. I went, I'm from Chicago. One of the guys went, huh, Al Capone. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and then they said, hey, we're playing volleyball on, on Monday night. Would you come and play volleyball with us? I still have a picture on my bulletin board because it's a good one. I mean, I got air. I'm spiking that ball. But, you know, would you come? On, on, on Friday before I left, they said, we're going we're gonna to get together as students. We'd like you to come and be our guest. And we just had some simple food, some apples, some caramel and all. They just, it just, it changed everything. The, the, the conversation the next week was, was back and forth. They asked questions. We had conversation. One of the gals came in one day with his fiance. 
And they came in and they introduced, you know, this is his fiance. And we were, I think we were just finishing up Proverbs. I said, well, today let's go to Song of Solomon. Everybody laughed. They just thought that was so funny. You know, just so much. It was just that kind of back and forth. And it all happened because I valued them and took the time to get their name. A simple gesture of servanthood valuing people and learning their names made a huge difference. You see, it doesn't have to be hard to be the people Jesus wants us to be. When you and I choose to be servants after the manner of Jesus, when we put others first in healthy ways by seeing ourselves as servants of God in their lives, God will use it in mighty ways to bring glory and honor to his name. You see, sometimes Jesus waits for us because he needs to get us until we are at our wit's end to teach us a lesson. And one of the lessons he wants us to know is that human leadership is all too often about status and power. But God-like leadership is always other-centered. And no matter our current situation, we can still exercise the qualities of God-like leadership. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word this morning. Thank you for practical lessons from your word. And thank you for this reminder today that you want us to be godlike leaders. And, and, and we may not even be in a what we would call a formal leadership position, but I know there is somebody out there that looks up to each one of us, somebody out there that watches us. May we reflect in, their, in our lives the fact that we follow you. And as a result, Lord, would you be glorified and honored as we serve others. In Jesus' name, amen.